0: Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell, because through that gateway evil will invade the world. That'll live on and on And no one will know As the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago In this little town When the 14th comes round There's a silence and fear in the air Remember the morn That the legend was born All the shock and the horror was there For the legend they say on a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago
1: All right, I'm here with Joe Rubin from Vinegar Syndrome, and we're here to talk about 1981's The Nesting. How you doing, Joe?
2: Uh, pretty good. It's, it's the start of the cold season in L.A.
1: Are you a fan of the cold season in L.A.? Uh,
2: definitely more than the cold season in New York.
1: I bet. I bet. Ohio doesn't really have a cold season anymore. It has a cold day, then a hot day, then a cold day.
2: Yeah, that's, that's the global warming.
1: Yeah, it's, it's about right. <laughs> it's trying to kill us. But uh, yeah, this is kind of a strange one. When I sent over the list of the ones that I was wondering you'd be interested in, I, you, I know why you picked The Nesting, but uh, I bet you can tell the audience why you picked it. But it's it's an oddball movie. It's not really one of the, I guess you'd say, the cream of the crop, but it, I guess it has some interesting behind-the-scenes stuff, right?
2: Yeah. I and mean, it, it, it was actually, uh, like a lot of movies that ended up coming out in the early 80s, shot in 79. So it's... Uh sort of a cheat to call this a 1981 film seeing as it was shot in 79 but then delayed uh, for release until 81.
1: that tends to happen a lot with them
2: yeah it's it's weird i was actually looking uh at uh butcher baker nightmare maker uh, which was shot in i think may or june of 1980 and didn't come out until like very late 81 but didn't have a wide release until 82 so there seem to be a lot of films that were made in 79 and 80 that inexplicably got delayed for a year or more
1: same thing with uh, the demon when you look up the demon with cameron mitchell it's listed as 79 but some people list it as 80 and 81 and all martin's another one martin's all over the place because people are listing the dates as like oh that was when they showed it in a barn to two people it's like is that really a screening yeah so it's all over the place,
2: but yeah, that's also symptomatic of independent films of this period. Like many, because I've also been spending a lot of time in the last year looking through the box office magazine database, which is really helpful for trade ads and identifying when things were actually originally produced and being marketed. And you'll see all sorts of films that you know had earlier titles or were initially being years in some cases before their eventual live release
1: well that also kind of changes the trajectory of like a lot of these movies too because if you look at the nesting and you're on paper and you're like 81 you're like well they had the shining the year before you have like ghost keeper the same year you're like is this kind of just uh inspired by like other haunted house movies like House house by the cemetery but in reality if it was starting to film in 79 it was actually kind of doing its own thing
2: yeah, and that's you know, some. We just released uh, Mother's Day, as you're aware. Yeah, and it uh, turned up during the production of the extras. That Mother's Day was shot a f- couple months after uh, Friday the Thirteenth in the same place, the same general general vicinity. And there's a shot in Mother's Day that is almost identical to a shot in Friday the Thirteenth because it was shot in the same road. And of course, you know, neither production was aware of the other one, Yeah, uh, but it's just like, that's the sort of strange coincidence that someone, you know, watching one and then the other may have assumed that someone you know, saw the first one to come out and decided I'm going to rip off that shot or shoot in the same place or some other kind of inaccurate conjecture just based on when films were released relative to when they were made.
1: Yeah, it's the same if you bring up To All Good Night, 1980. That movie was ahead of the big slasher boom, and it probably wasn't even made in 80. you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure when those uh, those Sandy code movies were made, because there were four of them. Uh, to All A Good Night, Home Sweet Home, uh, Air On Tour, and Mentor. They
1: were all shot back-to-back. So I, I'm going to have to say that To All A Good Night stands as the best one of the bunch. For me. I,
2: I would go with Demented. I think
1: Demented is just... Dementis does have the huge porn connection with it, right? With the actors in there and everything, too.
2: Yeah, Harry Reams is in it. Yeah. But it's and... also into All a Good Night. He plays the, the pilot. Yeah, on
1: he the... does. He does play the pilot. And he looks very suspicious. You think he's the killer the whole movie. Um, And this, this one has uh, a lot of the uh, connections to porn as well, right?
2: Yeah, but not in the cast side. it only on the Production side. So Armand Weston, who directed it, was a very well respected and acclaimed director of sex films. He made uh, a number of really significant kind of horror and thriller crossover films. Uh, started, I mean, it wasn't his first film, but his first big film was Defiance, uh, which uh, starred Gene Jennings, who would eventually marry Joe Spinell uh yeah and also fred lincoln uh and then he made the taking of christina which was loosely inspired by the inez garcia kidnapping case uh this is sort of a spoiler if anyone hasn't seen the film but uh the real case which is sort of replicated in the film is uh garcia was kidnapped and basically feigned Stockholm syndrome and manipulated her kidnappers into thinking that she actually loved them. And so they let her go home to get her stuff to go with them and she showed back up with a gun and shot them. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that was his... Not yet, not his second film, but his second big film. His first sort of bigger film is what we call Personals, which is an anthology uh, about... Uh, Personal sex ads, uh, which mixes reenactments and uh, semi legitimate interviews with people who placed ads. Uh, but yeah, then he made a film called Exposing Lovely, which, despite the title kind of riffing on uh, the recent release of Farewell My Lovely, which was released a few months earlier, is actually a really solid standalone detective murder mystery with some giallo elements and uh, again a, a good uh, killer reveal twist uh, then he made a film called Takeoff which was very totally different in the comedy uh, again a, sort of an anthology based on uh, The Picture of William Gray where he, the, the Dorian Gray character named name is Darren Lee uh, explains his life and truth and experiences from the 20s through the 60s and uh, it's, it's sort of uncharacteristically sweet for an Armin Weston film which for the, the most part kind of the spirit of uh, so, the producers of Expose Me Lovely were Sam Lake and uh, Robert Sumner, who are the producers of The Nesting. And I don't know why they made The Nesting or what their intentions were to make The Nesting, but The Nesting was originally called Phobia. And uh, because of John Huston's film of 1980, yep. uh, they. Were, and this is something that I'm not entirely clear on. I'm not sure if they were threatened by Paramount and forced to change the name, or like in the case of Last House in Dead End Street, which was originally called the Fun House, uh, where the producer explained that Universal actually paid him to stop calling it the Fun House because they wanted to produce a Toby Cooper film. They didn't want to have it called The Fun House that was also a horror film coming out at the same time. I'm not clear if the reason that phobia was changed to the nesting was because of a threat from Paramount or a payoff from Paramount. But in any case the film was shot in the late summer of 1979 September approximately uh, near uh, Terrytown, New York which is Jeff was doing randomly, and uh, was publicized as Phobia. was uh, initially sold as Phobia, but never distributed as Phobia. And then it seemed to just sort of disappear. Like it was, it was announced in '79, it was first publicized in '80, and then it just seemed to have disappeared until the spring of '81, when it actually finally came out as the Nesting.
1: So that's strange it's kind of funny though if if they would have never made them change the name from the fun house and they would have just found their own title change they would have had no problems with the bbc and the video nasty list because everyone knows that they thought the fun house was the video nasty but it was really last house on dead end street And they just kind of walked away scot-free on that because the people doing that were morons
2: well, yeah that's uh and what i I think and and i'm you know i'm I'm no expert in video nasties to any degree but i think that the nesting made it onto not of course the main list but like on like the third
1: tier list it's on it's on it's on there for sure i don't know if it landed on the second or third but it's definitely listed among the video nasties um probably wrongfully so honestly i don't know you know,
2: if you watch some of these things, like I Miss You Hugs and Kisses, which is actually a pretty good film, I thought. not I bad. It. But, you know, it has one murder sequence, and otherwise it's a drama.
1: It's like a TV movie. Yeah. With a gore scene. Yeah, with one gore scene. I think the alternative title probably got it on the list. It was I Hate Your Guts. So they see that fight for your life, I hate your guts, I spit on your grave, and they're like... Put it in there. Get it in there. It's on the list. You know what I mean?
2: So, well, I'm curious then, what did you think of nesting? So I saw your Letterbox star rating. uh, I did
1: enjoy it. I'm I'm looking at a six and a half, a seven or something like that. I didn't expect much because... Here's what it is. Um, The Nesting and Final Exam were movies that are probably like the biggest ones from 81 that I had never watched for some reason. The real reason is everyone's like, oh, they're dull, they're boring, they're crappy. So I buy them three or four times and never watch them. And then eventually I put this in. I was like, this is perfectly serviceable. Now, instead of being more of a slasher movie, which I I don't know why I had the idea that it was, it's more of a haunted house story, but I would put it more along the lines of like a House of Psychotic Women movie, right? Where it's kind of like the mental anguish and things like that. There is sure. a haunted house aspect, but uh, it, it reminds me of other movies I've seen, but I can't put my finger on it. Kind of like the the flashbacks and everything. Um, maybe um, Rosemary's Killer, because it has a lot of the flashbacks in the beginning and stuff like that.
2: Also a movie made by porn people.
1: Yeah, in 81 as well.
2: So, yeah, The, the Nesting, uh, this is the first time I've watched it probably since like 2010. Uh, and I was, I, I didn't enjoy it when I watched it in 2010, or whatever it was. And I actually did really like it this time. I didn't love it, but I, I was uh, impressed with more of the stylistic touches, and even though it's way too long, it does not need to be 103 minutes, uh, there... Sequences in it, like when she's being chased around the, the empty farm, kind of endlessly by the, the crazy redneck
1: Abby. That's yeah. the best character in the movie. Is Abby? He's Abner.
2: It, it, I, I I liked how slow that everything was. Like it didn't feel, you know, like okay, get to the point. Like you know, she, she there's a car chase scene crashes she gets out she goes over she looks at him he wakes up he chases her around she goes. this is probably like a 10 minute sequence that you know it has a fine payoff I guess but it's like this really long scene and that's the sort of thing that otherwise would have bored me But I, I felt like it, it worked the like it, it, film had much more of a laid back feel and what I actually am thinking of also 81 is Ghost Story
1: which is a good film too it's very laid back
2: Yeah, it's like another sort of
1: sleepy New
2: England, what's the mystery here of the haunted house? And again, very much like Ghost Story, it's about a bunch of old men who are trying to cover up their own crime from decades earlier that the ghosts are now avenging.
1: Yeah, I I think the guy actually plays Abner. Um, I I think he was probably the most memorable performance. I won't say best because I do enjoy his performance, especially there was a a distinct scene that I noticed when he was chasing her. I don't know if it's supposedly the head injury or he's just like act like a crazed uh, sexual rapist, but he was literally like this. "Eh," He stuck his tongue out like a 7 year old grandpa. And I was like, so that's the choice we're going with. You're running around sticking your tongue out. And I just thought that was hilarious. And like you said, the chase is very mundane. It's a mundane chase even, but the buildup to the actual chase when she goes in the house and he's like, you want to sit or stand. All his dialogue is really intense. That whole scene's really creepy. She should have known better not to go in that guy's house. Like he's taking a crap when she goes in. Oh, of course you'd come here, Frank, when I'm taking a dump. It's like, it's, it's, I don't know. That whole scene is actually probably the best stuff in the movie for me that up to the chase scene and the scythe. of course, the scythe
2: see one of the cats is active in the background
1: yeah that's that's claudio
2: so yeah i i I mean look if you want to judge the logic of the nesting storyline like why doesn't she the house after her doctor gets his eye impaled like there's you know so many illogical things about the motivations of characters in movies like this like i can't really read. well yeah of course Yes, if, if, if this were a real scenario she wouldn't have just been like yeah i'm gonna go into this like inbred hick looking stack with the guy who just announced it to the shit
1: like, it seems like every guy in the movie is a rapist or would be rapist like i was just the frank guy threw me off because like obviously he hates big city folk but then he's like i know what you want lady i was like wow that's kind of surprising i mean like Maybe the porn people that was like we got to get like that the transitions to like any sexual nature is just not very good on their part, but that was just it seemed out of character even for a villain, you know?
2: Yeah, again, like, like, I'm not gonna. So the the film was also co written by Weston and his writing partner Daria Price, and she'd also co written uh, Takeoff, and I don't maybe expose uh, me lovely to the but uh, you know she's still around, and she subsequently worked in mainstream stuff. Weston actually died a few years after the film was made. This was the final film to be directed.
1: Uh, Do you think he would have followed through with more uh, feature-length films, less, or would have went back to the porn industry? I don't
2: know. And yeah, it's it, it, it's it's unclear as to why. Yeah, you know, he was a very well-respected director of sex films, and he was also a, a poster artist. He was a, his background was as a, as like a, a fine artist, he was a painter. And so he would, he paint like the, the poster image for the nesting, he painted it. Uh, so he was, you know, he was certainly aware of film and art and all of that in a very formal, uh, intellectual capacity. And I, I, I read an interview with him years ago in a, magazines, a sex magazine, where he was talking about how he enjoyed making sex films because he was interested in exploring stories and characters and their motivations in terms of sexuality. But he found that directing sex films was also creatively stifling because there was the obligation to include a sex scene every five to ten minutes and therefore could become difficult to really communicate ideas because they could get lost in frequent sex scenes so you know from that interview i think it can be inferred that he did have an ambition of not making sex films and going into conventional films but why they made this and you know, why sumner and lake who did not produce i mean yeah they they, they both worked in film prior to Hardcore so they were producing softcore movies in the 60s but why they decided in 79 we're going to make this clearly mainstream oriented horror film like it's not you know there's a bit of nudity like there's a random scene looking at herself topless in a mirror and then the big brothel flashback at the end of a little bit of nudity, but it's not really a sex oriented film by any stretch like yeah there's a, a the house was a brothel so there's like the implication of sex but there's not there's not sex scenes I and mean, you know the attempted rapes go nowhere is just sort of a setup uh so it, this clearly wasn't an attempt to do like what was sometimes also done by sex directors where they would shoot an r-rated and an x-rated version of the same film to have multiple markets covered, and then you know shoot like a sex version of a scene, and then the same scene again with no sex in it. So this was clearly not an attempt to like make like you know like a, a big budget sex film, but also would have a, a an R rated version. So yeah, the, why they made this film, don't know.
1: It's strange. Like they, he also did do. I don't know how his porno films are, but he could have very well just added sex scenes in this movie. And kept the runtime and just added them like uh, Jody Amato did for Porno Holocaust or uh, the Daydream film from the same year, the Japanese one. These are regular movies almost. But then when the sex scenes happen, so they're running an hour and a half. And then there's 20 to 25 minutes of sex scenes, which makes all those movies just run way too long instead of cutting some of the sex or cutting some of the actual film. You don't need both, but they just kind of wear out their welcome as enjoyable as some might be, you know. So oh my God, what else is there to say? About this one? I mean, like, sure. the end massacre is actually pretty large. Like, I didn't expect... It, it seemed to go on for absolutely forever.
2: Yeah, well, actually, that, that is something else that... You know, and, and I would recommend his sex films. I think that they're all well worth watching. Uh, they're not... I, I, I would say that The Expose Me Lovely might be, as a film, the most interesting, just because, again, it has like a... a, a, a murder mystery gialloesque esque structure to it uh, but all of his sex films i think are a, a cut above the average and especially uh defiance taking of christine and exposed lovely all very nicely fit into a horror film adjacent mindset Not Defiance, because Defiance doesn't have any murders in it, but Defiance definitely plays like a horror film in terms of the lighting. And the first act is all set in an asylum. uh, And a very, uh, it it has a really nice sense of atmosphere. And the second half is the, the last hour of it, basically, is all in like this sort of, if it were a horror movie, it would be like a haunted house or, like, a a spooky house. I mean, that's kind of the point. And then, you know, taking Christina, which is a straight drama with thriller elements, it still has a throat-slashing sequence in it, and then the final shootings are, like, nice squib explosions. So, you know, he was into definitely making sex films that had horror, thriller, and murder elements to them. Uh, So you see a lot of that in the nesting and the nesting is also pretty downbeat like there's no fun there's no you know sure you can abnormally like, comically to a degree but i don't know that that's intended that much like, unintended byproduct of the performance. Mm-hmm. yeah, the
0: yeah.
2: Uh, but like i think his character and all of his actions including like absurd things with like the tongue coming out uh are intended to be unnerving and off-putting not funny so yeah, you know, the, the nesting definitely takes like a, a downer approach from beginning to end.
0: Yeah,
1: it, it's not really a comical film in that aspect. Um, I, I should probably, I'd probably get rid to it if I didn't mention John Carradine being in this. And John Carradine obviously uh, uh, popped up in a lot of later day horror films, and his performance in this one is pretty solid. He's pretty good in it. interesting character. Um, he's funny. He does have some funny lines, but that's just because he's a crotchety old man. But he's pretty good in this one.
2: Yeah, this was probably made uh, while he was on the East Coast uh, shooting the Boogeyman as well. I really, believe the Boogeyman was shot around the same time, maybe a little earlier. So, yeah, making the round, seeing uh, which independent production wanted some star
1: power. I, I wonder how many cookies and uh, beers they paid John Carradine in this one. So you hear the story on Satan's Cheerleaders where he was too scared to ask for cookies. Because he just basically was so used to living so poorly on sets that, like, he didn't ask for anything.
2: So the other uh, actor of note in this film is Gloria Graham, who plays the, uh, madam. Uh, and she basically has, like, a kind of glorified cameo. Yeah, you know, she only shows up in a few scenes, and then she has her big scene towards the end where she's explaining, like, who the main woman is and all of her relationship. But, yeah, do you know anything about her?
1: Not too much. I'd have to look her up on that one. Uh, what, what what other roles is she in? Uh,
2: she was like a, a 40s and 50s Hollywood actress. Okay. So this was, you know, like the kind of typical end of the career, plumbing it in whoever is willing to give her, give her a job. So she, and, and there's this, uh, the film was marketed, or, in terms of the fan reception, as like this is Gloria Graham's last performance. And I was trying to figure out, again, because it was released so long after it was produced, was this actually the last thing that she acted in, or was it just considered that because of when it was actually released? And I was looking at like the other films that she was in that were released around the time, and it might have been the last thing that she was in, especially if it was shot in September or October of 79 uh the other ones that have been verifiable were all shot earlier in 79 so she died in i think 82 or 83 Uh, so not long after the film was made pretty close to when it was released so yeah this could have been really again. So there's nothing worthy about that and she she's from an era of film that i'm not particularly interested in or at least not the era so much as the type of films. Like she wasn't, you know, she, she was a mainstream Hollywood actress. She was not acting in genre films or poverty girl films or things like that. But yeah, again, how they managed, you know, how, how the how the porno uh, producers managed to rope this, I don't know if she ever got like an Oscar nomination or something, but she was, she was a name noteworthy actress and that's why they made a big deal in the advertising also out of her presence in the film, because you know, out of the... John Carradine certainly held a certain degree of weight to a drive-in audience, but Gloria Graham was truly, like, a big Hollywood star in her day.
1: That'd be interesting to do the top 10 slumming it roles, or, like, just the style, you know what I mean? That would be pretty excellent. And, I mean, the problem is, like, you'd have to find an actor who's not used to slumming it, so you couldn't, like, crow Cameron Mitchell, because... You know, these guys were in 500 movies like this. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah. There's that's actually that's actually a good. Uh, I guess you also want to. It would depend on how you wanted to define slumming it, like you know, Hollywood slumming it versus this kind of slumming it. And I, I wouldn't even necessarily. I, I think it's sort of unfair also to describe a film like this featuring an actress like Gloria Graham as slumming it. Like in her mind she might have been. But I don't think that there's anything in the film that indicates that they weren't taking the material seriously and that they weren't taking her seriously. But yeah, from the perspective of, you know, she's used to being, being a Hollywood contract player to now she's appearing in a movie made by a bunch of porn people. Like yeah, that that's a form of slumming it but the thing that's actually the most interesting to me is when you'll have really poverty road production like this thing still i don't know how much it costs but it definitely cost in the hundreds of thousands probably costs maybe upwards of half a million so this wasn't and if you think also about inflation from 1979 to today half a million dollars in 1979 is like two million dollars so this wasn't you know like a Shot in someone's backyard type production. Like they spent money on it. The house is is actually a landmark. Shot still exists if you take a tour of it. Uh, And uh, there's there's effects, there's a decent sized cast, things that clearly show that they were within their budgetary means, they were pulling out all the stops to make something that felt like a good professional mainstream film but yeah there's these movies that occasionally i can't think of them offhand but these, uh especially the southern it's like you know old, like or, uh you know that one 1970
1: yeah i actually skipped that one from florida right i skipped yeah. that one when i did 1970 because honestly it looked like some of the worst movie that i would have to watch for 1970
2: it's I, I don't know what else you watched for 1970, but it's, it's not terrible, and it's only 70 minutes. I mean, it's, it's like Nazis trying to do some kind of, like, Hitler reincarnation with maggots or some nonsense like that. Uh, I, I watched it maybe a year ago, and again, after having not watched it probably since I was, like, 15, and not having any memory of it from when I was 15, However old I was. And
1: I kind I of at it this time it sounds kind of like the 1981 night of the zombies by Joel M Reed, which to me is probably one of the worst movies of 81.
2: Yeah. I, I, that's, I, I'd put it out to be honest.
1: I'd watch it again. I don't know what that says about me. Maybe just because it's on film and it's by a notable director and it, you know what I mean? It also has, it's Jamie Gillis in that one, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A foreign connection. There we go. Um, so out of these, uh, movies here, um, which, which movies from 81 do you think stand way above the other ones in terms of quality, in terms of genre movies, this, this is by internet movie database too. Cause a lot of these movies, it's really mixed up on what was released and stuff and widely, it's all kind of a mess, right?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there's a big, and this is, I've argued with you about this before. There's always a problem with relying on the internet to, uh, Decide what, uh, when something was made. Yeah, I mean, I think like obvious must watch films from '81, something like The Beyond and Dead and Buried, those are two, uh, respectively masterpieces within their filmmakers' careers. and then, I suppose, for uh, two more underrated ones that came up earlier, Butcher Baker, uh, Nightmare Baker, which, uh, yeah, I was just I was looking at that shortly before I got on this uh, video with you. And, yeah, that's just a, a, a film that is so well put together and mean-spirited, and I love that. Like, I, I love just how nasty and unrelentingly downbeat it is. Uh, and then one that I think we talked about the last time that we did one of these in my slashers list or something like that, uh, Night School.
1: Underrated books. for sure.
2: Cannot recommend enough. Like that movie, I, I, I'm shocked that it has this kind of middling reputation as a very uh, forgettable, generic slasher. And it's, it's really good. Like it, it's... Very well-directed. It has so much style. It's one of the best American Geology.
1: The with motives that- are good. What? The, the killer's motives are great. Um, they keep you... It yeah. can't possibly boil it down to a couple possible suspects. The, the crimes are... The MO is really cool. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, and everything is really stylish. I mean, uh, the obvious one to... Sequence to choose is when woman's decapitated on the sort of the pseudo merry-go-round thing
1: <laughs> that's but, right in the opening
2: yeah uh but it, it's everything about the, like that film is just good like it's not not on a scale of 1981 horror films it's just genuinely good
1: um i think all four of those you picked are on the video nasties list in some way or another probably I think they actually are. I think Night School and, and Beyond are and Dead and Buried, and the fourth one was, geez, why am I, Butcher Bank? I think they're both on, all four of those are on the section one or two list.
2: Yeah, probably. Well, I mean, they're great. One, I don't think it's on any of them. It's pretty tame, but also really good. The Fan. It's a good film. It, it there, There's something really perverse about it. It's and,
1: underlining homosexual stuff going on, too, with Michael Biehn. Not, not even underlying I it's mean, right in your face he's clearly got some he's dealing through some sexual to turmoil to
2: kill him to seal his identity um
1: the th- the thing about him and michael bean i've always felt was a very intense underrated actor and uh he i, I think probably maybe he had some issues because he should have been a star because he was just so good at everything he was in and i don't know if he had a lot of issues that just pushed him back or something along the lines
2: yeah, and and that's you know the the fan was again a movie that I didn't watch for many many years because I would always conflate it with the very mediocre '90s film by the same name.
1: Oh, the uh, Robert De Niro.
2: Yeah, and which I suppose I should also probably revisit with uh, fresh eyes. But when it's I finally,
1: been a long time, I was fine but, with it when I saw it, but I was ten, right?
2: Yeah. And so when I finally watched the '81 film, like it, it was just so. Different, and, uh, you know, some, something that I always uh, relate to, to the extent that I get emotionally invested in uh, movies and their characters and the plight of their characters, is when middle-aged to elderly people are murdered. I always feel very like bad about that. Like that's like to me like the meanest thing you can do, uh, like murdering an old person. Much more than kids. Kids kill them all day, but. Uh, but the, the elderly, I, and I remember there's, like, a sequence in the fan where he's basically trying to kill, like, the, the elderly assistant. Of in the elevator? Maybe. Uh, and that's another scene that just stuck out. Like, this is, like, such, like, a, a cruel thing to do.
1: I had the same issue with middle-aged women when they're attacked in movies. I always just associate it with my mother and I immediately, Oh, that just always makes me upset. You know what I mean? Well, then you look at something like home bodies where when old people die in that film, anybody in general, it's funny, which even though it's very dark, but it's still comedic. Home,
2: well, home bodies is also a pro elderly film.
1: Yeah. But it's very funny though. But I mean, they turn on each other too. Like, uh, that would be a comparison to, like, Massacre at Central High, you know? They take care of the, the enemies, but then what's left but to turn on each other, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Ah.
2: Still tea on the keys.
1: <laughs> but I, I think those movies are actually, they have a comedic bend to them, especially homebodies, but they're actually darker than a lot of people would give credit to.
2: Homebodies is also just a sad and, and the, the thing about Homebodies is I love the first half. I think that the first half when it's all about uh, the, the plight of being old and alone or is so effective and resonating but then when the when they start turning on each other it loses a bit of its point, because it, it, it's, it's making such a strong and, and meaningful commentary in, in like a really clever way uh, about, basically, and, and is, these are things that are still, of course, very relevant today with housing, uh, people getting priced out of their homes and uh, the threat of developers. So it, it was just... And Homebodies is excellent. I mean, I'm, I'm not knocking Homebodies, but it, it was just disappointing that that was the direction that they chose to go rather than sticking to what had become such an effective point in the first half or two-thirds of it.
1: It definitely I'd... loses some originality, I would say, you know?
2: So What are your uh, top 81 films?
1: I spoil my list. Of course, The Beyond. The Beyond is such a strong film. But I, I like a lot of the typical ones. I like American War from London. I don't really have an order. I, I really like um, The Burning, but I love Dead and Buried. a huge fan. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, House by the Cemetery, uh, stuff like that. Uh, looking down the list myself to refresh my memory. I, I like sleazy stuff like Nightmare and weird stuff like The Pit. Um, I, some underrated ones for me are stuff like Madhouse. I think that's totally underrated film. It's because it's so bizarre, and the Rizzo score from Cannibal Holocaust. One that I was really happy with seeing, I, I was impressed with it, was Night of the Werewolf. I had never watched that. And I was like, this is a lot more fun than some of the other werewolf movies from this year. Um, and like, I, there's some stuff that I'm a little down on that I think a lot of people would be surprised. Um, I, I'm not the world's biggest fan of Halloween 2. I don't think Scanners is Cronenberg's best film.
2: I agree with you there.
1: And But, you know, I, I typically like Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. Um, happy Birthday to Me is a little underrated. Falchi's black cat's underrated. You know these are better than they get credit for. When
2: I was in England uh, back in early September, late August, whatever it was, uh, I uh, went to the village where the black cat was shot.
1: Yeah. Delightful. Still look the same.
2: Looks exactly the same. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you would guess that movie's a period piece almost.
2: Yeah. yeah I mean, we. Uh, it was a, a very typical. English Day, so it started to rain while we were there. So we went into, you know, like the the like the big church with the graveyard. Yeah, Uh, we went into that church and we were walking around the church. And there's a pub that's still there that we went into. And yeah, it was absolutely delightful. I bet. Ewan told me uh, he took me over uh, that when uh, he and Stephen throw were shooting the location piece. Uh, some woman came out of her house and was like oh what are you doing uh and said well, shooting locations for uh this movie that was shot here 40 years ago and she remembered it she's been there since the 60s
1: so was there that that many movies shot there because when i watched that one it, it sticks out in fulci's because fulci I mean, some of his movies take place in the UK, but not like that. Not like the classic style hammer gothic village. You know, that's just different for him. It's He has Poe tendencies, but not like that.
2: Yeah. Well, another thing that really sticks out to me about Black Hat is the score. It has, I think, one of uh, Pino Tinnagio's best scores.
1: Yeah, it's a great score. Very memorable. Very different, too. It's not Fabio Frizzi. It's not uh, somebody that he typically worked with.
2: Yeah, and but it, it's very fitting. Like, it's... It, it, uh it makes it feel less Italian in a good way.
1: Yeah. It's definitely going for the British flair. Of course, you got to have it and whatnot. Um, and all the actors in there can, they're versatile, you know, they're a pair in all different sorts of countries. So they almost have like, although they're from certain countries that we know, they don't have a, a definitive country associated with them to me.
2: Yeah. Well, it's also something that's like very Italian, you know, having the international casts and they don't really, uh, uh, fits in any specific uh, demographic or, uh, or nationality.
1: So um, just in terms of haunted house movies from 81, I guess we'll kind of run down and you say better or worse. You don't have to give a huge explanation. Is the nesting better or worse than them? And I lifted this from another podcast I enjoyed listening to. So it's, um, I, I guess people would say the beyond, but I don't really consider it a haunted house movie, but it is, it really kind of is. So beyond
2: beyond is definitely better
1: okay um house by the cemetery better okay um we'll go ghost story similar okay um then we'll go ghost keeper uh uh,
2: nesting is better
1: okay um i think we were brought out of ghost stories in that year i think there's only the handful of them you know what i mean
2: yeah, it was a very old-fashioned I mean, especially with something like Ghost Story and Nesting. The reason I say similar is because you know, as I was watching it last night, I was thinking, this really reminds me of Ghost Story. Like both yeah. are about outsiders who come to this town and discover that a bunch of old men have kept this murderous secret for years, and there's, in the case of Nesting, many angry ghosts. In the case of Ghost Story, one angry ghost who wants to avenge their respective murders.
1: There are other ghost films, but not in a haunted house aspect. Like, have you ever watched Ghost of Love, which is more of a romantic ghost story from 81?
2: I mean, I'm sure there's like Hong Kong movies from 81 that have some kind of ghost element.
1: There's a lot of, yeah, some of those ones that you get to the Hong Kong and Taiwan movies, you're like, is it a ghost or is it just complete insanity? I'm not, like, Gate of Hell? I... Good luck. That's a vampire film, but who knows exactly what's happening. Kind of,
2: like, goofy, too.
1: It's weird. It, it, you can tell it's missing 20 minutes. When you watch these movies and they tell you it's an hour and seven minutes, you're like, there's 20 minutes missing from this.
2: I watched one yesterday that's, uh, I don't know what the real title of it is, but the title on the trip that I watched is Devil Box.
1: That uh, late 90s or 80? No, 84. Okay.
2: And it's about a guy who's uh, directing TV commercials, and for whatever reason, the location they're shooting at is a devil box. And like the movie just opens with like, you know, they're preparing with a shot, This it's more just like, yeah, move the devil box. And very nonchalantly, and then the devil box activates whatever that means.
1: Like they don't, it, that'd be like, if you could just live with the lament configuration in everyday life, like that's not a thing.
2: So well, basically, it just starts killing people, kind of. But it, nothing about it really makes any sense. That we never understand what the devil box is. Is just you know, it shows up and it floats around sometimes, and it opens and then there's a big like a bright light comes out of it. And it it has great atmosphere, uh, like really beautiful photography, uh, great stolen tangerine
1: dream score. that's very funny about those always a sold score you'll hear and you're like what is that and
2: nothing about it makes sense it's like a full it's like a full-on trip film but there, yeah there's like he's like seeing like ghosts of the people who have been killed uh yeah it was it was like so beautiful and so sort of disarming that I enjoyed it, but I have no idea what the point of it was. It never even tries at the point.
1: There's one that I watched for um, 81 that had a lot of similarities to um, a Dario film, and I'm missing, it might have been called uh, Life After Life. Did you watch that one? It's kind of like a weird reincarnation story. I think it's either Hong Kong or Japanese. And honestly, that one is kind of a hidden gem. I'm, I'm double checking on it. I'm looking like a jackass over here, but I just want to make sure the country of origin, because it is, it might be Hong Kong or it's, a, it's Hong Kong Cantonese.
2: Okay. Is it up on Plex? It.
1: What was that? Is it on Plex? Um, it is on Plex. Yeah. I, th- I think you might be interested in it. It's not a perfect movie. It's a little kind of like the reincarnation stuff. And that, that tended to happen a lot with the Asian films around the time I'm noticing or twin accent, a lot of twins and stuff like island of evil Sol- spirits and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, I, I during the recent syndicate and free Loosh, I downloaded one called Simon's Twins, and I'm sure that's going to be very literal.
1: What year was that?
2: I, 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 yeah. I was, I was trying to go for countries that I don't normally get much stuff from, so I just was like choosing Asian countries. So I got a ton of things from Hong Kong. I actually watched one the other day called Evil Black Magic.
1: I've uh, heard of that. That's nineties. That's nineties, but it feels like something
2: from the early eighties, and it's directed by the guy who made Black Magic, Black Magic Two, and Orphan So Oh, so our
1: le- early Hong Kong guy from this. Those are seventies, late seventies, right? So he
2: he has the same. I mean, he was like seventy something years old. When he did. So it has that like more like traditional. Feel it's like you know, a lot of like wizards and flying. I mean, there's 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 midgets in it. A bunch of midgets pop out of the ground.
1: So that's 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 kind of bizarre element there because a lot of that early Hong Kong stuff is almost never gets away from the kung fu element, like human lanterns or or um, heaven and hell or Shaolin's gate. They're all like they're almost more martial arts movies than they are horror films, and even like uh, they might go more giallo. Than, than horror, like Corpse, Corpse Mania from 81, but they still have that horror aspect.
2: Yeah. So black Friday is coming up on the 24th. Yep. Yeah. 24th, oh one a.m. Eastern time. And, uh, yeah, this is a lineup that uh, has been many years in some cases in the making. And for me, the two titles that I'm most excited for are, uh, fatal games, which has already been announced. And, uh, Hopefully, most people watching this are familiar with Babel Games. It's a very knowingly trashy uh, early 80s slasher that has a great killer twist to reveal. Uh, It's a a device too infrequently used that is fun every single time, uh, I
1: think. Uh, And you guys actually released a movie that has a similar twist, to be honest. We won't spoil what it is. Really, yeah. Um, Italian Fatal Games was a movie that they were rumored from Code Red for years, and people were were clamoring for this one because it is a slasher, and it's one of the good slashers that never had a, a DVD release or even uh, much of a release at all.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's also just a really fun film. Like it moves at a good pace. It has a lot of killings in it. Uh, there's a, a cleverness to. I mean, you know, it's the only movie where everyone dies by javelin. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, th- yeah, there there were rumors. I mean, Bill Olson would constantly talk about how he knew where the negative was, which I do not believe at all because uh, we checked every single place that it could possibly have been, and it was not there. And Bill would occasionally come through with surprises where he would find stuff that. Uh, you know, no one still existed, and, and Bill again. He was a... He actually it was just uh, the one-year memorial of his death a couple of days ago, three to three, four days ago, I think. And, and of course, he and I had our our, our long-standing social feud, but uh, Bill ultimately did a lot. in industry yes he became crazier and more unhinged and less rational and harder to deal with in the last decade of his life but uh he he does deserve a lot of credit he doesn't deserve credit for all things for everything that people give him credit for but he also cannot be denied credit for anything especially during the People last year so this is a big digression but uh yeah he uh he used to claim that he knew where the negative for Fatal Games was, and I am 99% certain he did not. So in early 2020, right before the uh, shutdowns, the big national shutdown nonsense, uh, the, uh, I was uh, I visited the director's son because he... Uh, this is... Sorry, not the director, producer's son. Uh, and this is when he was still alive, the producer. And he thought that he was cleaning out his dad's house. His dad was in the nursing home. His last life. And he said, I think I found the negative. I think I found the film for this movie. Uh, And So I rushed over to his house. And fortunately, he didn't know anything about film and then the tapes. So that was very disappointing. So it was a complete lost cause for a while. Until him, uh, who runs uh, Pulse Video, which is one of our partners, uh, uh, I was chatting with him about fatal games, and I learned sometimes, well, to not not go too specific, but we had some success in discovering good materials for American movies in various European labs, including France, because even if they weren't the original negatives, an internegative, positive, or CRI, or something was frequently sent over to another country to make prints for that country. Like, for instance, the uh, recent Sephirn release of the last horror film, the negative was the American version, which had some gore shots cut out, and it was released really uncut in France. And again, thanks to Guillaume, uh, Dave was able to track down a film element that in France that included those additional shots and he was able to therefore uh, really reassemble the completely uncut version of the film entirely from film as opposed to what eighty eight had done on their previous the which is used for video inserts. So I you know, would send Guillaume list of like here are movies that we have rights to or we can get rights to that. We don't have any film on, or we have a bad even computer that have a damaged film on. And one of these titles was Fatal Games. Did some research and managed to find an internet like Fatal Games at a lab in France, which was kind of major because one the thing that was known to exist on film for Fatal Games was a print, uh, which was a British print, therefore had been cut uh, for censorship so yeah we managed to get Negative* and fatal games and, uh granted it's, it, it's in pretty rough condition unfortunately as you can see from the screenshots it doesn't look anything like the original negative would have looked of course but you know it still looks a little it, it's uncut it's the the correct version of the film it's you know not uh it, it's finally going to have a release that unless you know by some miracle the original negative does turn up is probably the best the film it's definitely the best the film has ever looked on video it's probably the best it's going to look for a long time coming unless something better turns up but uh yeah this was a, a passion project for me it was certainly a passion project for you and the uh produced all of the extras and really uh went above and beyond in terms of trying to track people down to do interviews some of whom were not exactly thrilled to talk about the film uh, for, for the most part everyone was actually proud of it and happy with it but uh yeah every, every so often you'll you'll mostly with actors you'll find someone who's like oh why do you want to talk to me about that in the lead time my career uh but uh, was it wasn't that bad in fatal games but uh yeah, it, 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 there also wasn't like a universal celebration of it, uh, but I'm very excited about it. We are all very excited that this film is finally going to have a quality release. And uh, The other film that I'm really excited for is one of the secret titles, which uh, is the early 80s slasher of the two, which is other, you know, it's only ever been released on VHS, looking absolutely abysmal. And in this case, uh, I you know, there were prints of it around, and acquired a couple of prints. And a collector friends had uh, a, a print, and archive had prints. There were, uh, so we knew you know, there were a bunch of prints, and we'd gotten some of them, scanned some of them. We had the rights from the, again, the producer's daughter, in this case and she had no idea what happened to Nike. Uh This particular film, uh, the company that released it on VHS had been acquired subsequently by a larger studio. So at one point, I asked that studio, do you possibly have anything on this film? And they said, nope, all we have is a, a video tape master. So We were about to proceed with just using prints and just scanning a bunch of them taking the best pieces of each one. And then uh, Ewan, who was again producing the extras for it, noted to me, by the way, I was looking at an inventory for this archive and it turns out that they have a CRI of it. The CRI is a first-generation duplicate element uh, that was commonly from the very late 60s to the mid 80s. Uh, so that was, again, incredible. Like, we managed to get yeah, kind of at the last minute, like, we, we didn't even get scans on this thing in August. This is for you know a title that's coming out in November. Like we were able to start restoration on it until August. And uh, therefore, we managed to get a picture element that looks. So much nicer than all these uh, release prints that we were working up, and again, you know, it's not in amazing shape. It still has a lot of damage that had to have taken off. But yeah, this movie is one that I have loved for years. I mean, I've put it in Humorous, uh horror lists, top ten lists, slasher lists, and so on. Uh, again, it, it's not a conventional slasher. It's certainly nothing like Fatal Games, where there's like a. a Killer, whether known or unknown, going out, stalking people, killing them. A motive, I mean, there's a motive. It's much more of a tone piece, but it's also quite brutal at times. It has a wonderful sense of uh, uh, of, of place. Uh, the use of locations and sets, the sets that uh, takes place. In. Very effective and uh, director who had never given treatment on it before. Was also very excited to be contacted and speak with the film. I was very proud of it.
1: And I think I know what this film is. And if I remember correctly, the VHS was terrible.
2: Yeah. Well, I... yeah. That's, that's most VHS of the. This. this was a worse than usual VHS pretty shortly after it was released theatrically. And so it's been, yeah, it's been out of print on, v- or released on VHS like 40 years ago.
1: Yeah, so that, that's that's pretty impressive, honestly. That That's definitely a checklist one. And one that, if I, I'm i guessing, is probably not talked about too much still to this day, because as, as we know, if it's not streaming or it's not brand new Blu-ray, nobody knows what they are anymore.
2: And that's also one of the things that we try to do on an annual basis with the secret titles both of the Halfway Sale and Black Friday sale is you know have one film which is bigger and better known it's like the tension grabbing because I've heard of it. We certainly I think we certainly have that with this uh, bigger title which is a UHD debut of a very noteworthy film by a very noteworthy filmmaker. Uh, and again it's uh, I I would say that it's definitely canonical in terms of his. Uh, it, it, it's in the top five to ten movies that you associate with this filmmaker, probably, uh, and so that will hopefully be the thing that you know, draws a lot of people to looking at what we have coming out during Black Friday, like what what's revealed, to the sale goes up, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah,
1: good. I was just going to say, also, you got um, another big series of films, the prophecy films, and I'm sure people are interested how you uh, got those, required those because that I remember is Dimension, right, Miramax kind of Dimension, if I'm not mistaken.
2: So recently, we uh, did a fairly large licensing deal with Paramount, which uh, has gotten, I mean I think that between all of the titles that we've licensed from them, I mean, we've gotten nearly 40 films. So quite a lot of stuff. And uh, this includes, uh, again, a movie that I uh, will, be, will be announcing it officially soon enough, but again, something that I kind of soft announced on Facebook, which is uh, a wonderful colored Gothic, Italian Gothic, that we're going to be bringing to UHD for the first time ever uh, in January. But yeah, we, we got a whole array of films from Paramount. And Paramount <clears throat> uh, uh, co acquired the Miramax library. So they now control the distribution licensing on a lot of the Miramax. Library. That's why they're really Scream Films now and other famous dimension titles. And so we we're looking at you know, what's of interest from Dimension Library. The guy who we're working with at Paramount, who like, like, I work with people at a number of studios now, but he's also, he's really been like, a, a wonderful friend to distributors. I, 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 not, I'm not just speaking on behalf of Vineyards and Jim here, Like, you know, I, I know that everyone has really enjoyed working with this particular person at Paramount because he was a fan of... He's a big cinephile, he's specifically a fan of genre films, and he really helped us uh, get a good sense of the range of titles that Paramount have in their catalogue, so that we were able to get some really incredible stuff, like, those, like movies that were are going to be next year, a bunch of zero debuts, 4K debuts from both Paramount regular, as well as Dimension, that... I think are going to be really exciting to genre film fans, as well as uh, fans of weird and independent, uh, not quite the genre stuff from 70s and 80s. So sort of like the, uh, the, the like movies more in the in vein the of uh, Tough Guys Don't Dance. Okay. That also picked up. From Paramount. But uh but yeah, the, the prophecy films uh came through Paramount. We have I guess, like I said other titles. And of course there's also prophecy four, five, and six, I think. And we were thinking, well, what are we gonna do? Get all of these things and do like this massive, massive box set or not and we ended up selecting the first three in part because they're the new ones. But uh no offense to the filmmakers who made four through six, they're fine, I'm sure, but uh some tastes. But uh we also wanted to not delve too much into the two thousands era of production three, despite having been released in two thousand, was a copy that copy, that copy. So it was like more comfortable like, okay the three 90s films, but also the three films that walk in because after three, he's no longer involved in the series, and it became much and the series itself became much more of like a sort of children of the corn, like you know, let's very super or, or hellraiser, like those other sort of dimension. Like, we want to keep the, the right to use the name unrelated, to movies, so we're going to shoehorn the storyline to fit the name in a sense. So we, we went with the, the trilogy because it felt like a true trilogy. Having four, five, and six would no longer name aside really felt like they belonged. And again, the, the first three are actually quite good. The first one is excellent. Like, yeah. Good film. As a 90s high concept horror movie goes, The Prophecy is actually one of the more interesting, creative, original ones. And even two and three, which sort of try to rehash some of the things, and of course they're focused much more on Walken. I mean, two is definitely focused on Walken, three is sort, of, sort of a secondary character that's so prominent. Uh, they felt like a cohesive trilogy, like they, they, they belong together. And again, that was another uh, pretty massive undertaking because finding good materials. And this is one of the things that's actually kind of been kind of. You always assume, well, movies from the 70s and 80s, like before and even early 90s, before the age of DVDs and when everything was theatrical VHS television, you know, they would have been less likely to keep negative, sort of track down where materials were. But we're discovering that there are a lot of movies from the where there's no good material. Like there's a film that we were going to actually license from Dimension uh, from Paramount catalog, it's like a pretty big, important '90s horror film, and Paramount again. They, you know, this is not their fault in any way because they didn't produce the film; they just acquired it in the library. But when they acquired the Miramax catalog, they've told me that they just there were Miramax did a horrible job keeping track of the negatives. And for this very big, so to say, I'm not going to tell the title because we might have to replace it if we can't find anything in it, but this is like a huge group, like tens of thousands of IMDB votes for if you want to gauge it in that respect. And they cannot find anything. They don't know what the negative is. They don't even know where your positive is. They don't even know where a print is. Mm-hmm. And, and this is like a movie from the mid nineties. And that, that's that in and of itself is shocking. How can something that I was in elementary school, when this film came out, how was it lost?
1: That's strange. That is really strange because people, that is a kind of underlying thing too. Like people think that nowadays films are going to be easier to preserve because they are hard drives or whatever, but hard drives go quicker than film really. And they're yeah. more delicate.
2: Yep. Yeah. I have negatives from the fifties that are in immaculate condition and I have a heart and I have hard drives from six months ago that don't mount.
1: Yeah, it happens, unfortunately. So that that's interesting. So um, as far as the movies that are going to be on sale, is there anything that's going to be on sale here that you would highly recommend for the first time?
2: Uh, you mean like uh, movies that are going to be discounted?
1: Yeah, for the first time that maybe yeah. haven't been before.
2: Yeah, let me have a look. At this. Some underrated we're, gems, maybe? Uh, if we're talking just about movies that have come out uh, that will be discounted for the first time during the sale, uh, the ones that I would absolutely recommend to anyone, especially from uh, a horror focus, although they're not all horror, uh, the Villages of the Damned sets, which uh, in part actually came about uh, thanks to you, you recommended uh, forest of the wolf of Musk del Robo. Uh great and, film yeah and I, I watched it and i really loved it so i tracked down the rights and turned out that the same company owned rights to a couple other films that were peripherally full horror i mean the point of the set is not full horror I and mean, it's not I, I don't even think that would really push that in the marketing but effectively that that's a collection of three spanish-made films uh produced between 1969 and force of the wolf through 76 *Beatriz*, which are all uh sort of folk horror movies Uh, they're all very different tonally and uh, force of the wolf is about local superstition uh, it's much more of a character study and the guy' his name of the guy who plays the killer pseudo made werewolf and it's, it, it is he has a really memorably ugly face and uh his performance is equally sympathetic and nasty and yeah, it, it's uh it was one of the best films that i watched whatever year you recommend to me uh, yeah
1: i i recommended that when we were going through 70 the lead in that reminds me kind of like an eli wallach or warren oates type because it but just not as handsome as those guys i guess you'd say and they make them ugly on purpose too but that's based on a true story so it's kind of like one of these loose horror movies that's based on a true story and in terms of something like the frenchman's garden or with uh the paul nashe film which i think is equally as good
2: yeah i mean this and that one made my top 10 of that year of first watches it's it's such an impressively done film and it it stays with you uh and then the other two films in that set uh Beatriz is is a movie that was made by a filmmaker I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because I do not speak any Spanish and I don't like butchering uh, non English names, but uh, he was kind of known for making film, like genre adjacent films that were much more esoteric and kind of Marcousi in approach. Uh, and I'd, I'd seen a couple other films that he made and I didn't love them. But something about Beatrice is just uh, really nasty. Like I, I, someone described it as like a, a supernatural straw dogs. I don't think that's entirely accurate, although I can see where they're drawing some parallels. But it it, again, it, it has this similar sense to Horse of the Wolf, where it's less about whether or not a truly supernatural thing is occurring than the superstition that promotes the belief that it might be supernatural. And therefore, the paranoia that comes along with it and actions that would be taken to stop the supernatural, the potential supernatural thing. The third film in the set uh, is a really wild one, uh from the director of what I think is one of the best uh uh British movies of the mid-sixties, and that's a, a high praise. And I'm not just saying like, British genre films, like one of the for me most memorable. British films in the 60s like of Girl*, which, if you have not seen, I would probably recommend Uh made by a Canadian guy with an Italian. and this thing is called The Sky Is Falling. The Sky Is Falling, but it came out uh, in the US. Uh it actually came in the U.S. with that title, but it came video in the US as a bloodbath, which is not exactly accurate, but it has yeah. again really weird cast. It has Carol Baker and Dennis Hopper. And again, it's not... The the supernatural elements here are probably a bit more literal, but the entire film is like a big trip. It's also very metaphor-related. The guys who produced it would go on to produce films by both Vegas Luna and Alex de la so, oh, you know, they so that's big they're their fingers in the on the pulse of interesting filmmakers working in Spain who wanted to make movies that were very unusual and this is I think the first film this well, the first film the first uh, big film that this producer made and, and it's, it's like nothing else and I could get credit here to uh, Charles Devlin, uh, who is a uh, incredible film researcher who, on um, the Vinegar Syndrome Facebook fan page several years ago, uh, was doing a series of random clips uh, where he would just put up like a couple minutes of like, random with no context or title or that thing. Uh, he put up a clip from this film, and it was just so weird that especially without the context. Uh, and I asked him, what is this movie? And he told me what it was. And I watched it, and this is it's such a strange and really original, fresh feeling film. But it's again, not, none of the movies in the set are horror in conventional sense, but they all have elements of supernatural, potentially supernatural murder, uh, folklore, folk horror, Uh, local superstition, things like that, and turned out that same company owned all three. So, it's a perfect set. Anyway, after that really long-winded description, I'll try to be quick for the rest of them. Uh, The next one that I would absolutely recommend, again, similar, like, what is this type of uh, viewing experience? Infernal Rapist.
1: That is an insane movie.
2: Yeah. and Again, I I can't take credit for... uh, discovering or discovering but for finding this movie or watching this movie my yeah, own this is actually a film that was uh, from massacre video showed many years ago and because he loved it and uh it turned out that because we can get a whole bunch of mexican films and we still have more mexican films to go uh the big problem there again is the materials we have so many films with license Beeks, for instance, which just came out of a few months ago. And the second volume of the Cardona set took forever because we couldn't find anything good. So the only thing we located okay was print. And because Beeks is arguably the most entertaining film Cardona ever made. Uh, <laughs> probably is. Uh, we decided, well, we have to release it. So we took it from the best thing that we could find. But anyway, so Infernal Rapist came from another producer and he made some really bizarre stuff in the 80s. And it's, again, trying to just describe the plot in terms of a a linear narrative doesn't do the film justice because it's, it's all a tone thing. And there's, ostensibly it's about a serial rapist who is given demonic powers uh, on the condition that he basically continued raving. And is, is that accurate synopsis?
1: Yes. I mean, like, if I had, if you said, Logline, explain this movie to me or sell me this movie, I'd be like, it's essentially a Hong Kong movie from the 90s in the most fucked up possible way you can think, but for some reason it's Mexican.
2: Yeah, actually, that's a, yeah, yeah. If you like Cat 3 films and, yeah, and you and you would prefer them to be in Spanish,
1: Die uh, after died
2: yeah this this is this is that but it, you know th- there's also killings in it I mean there's uh it, it's 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 totally wild and I, I can't remember her name but the actress she plays like the sort of demon woman who gives him the power she's great she's yeah. in the films and she's also she's uh she's also in punks uh, and she she really like she's up the scenery and knows how absurd the character she's playing is and like has a lot of fun with her.
1: And they also give like the guy powers like he's from the mausoleum, which you guys put out. Like he's like essentially has powers like from mausoleum like lifting people up. It's just giving the worst human being all the power in the world. It's it's a lot of fun. It's and it's just insane. It's insanely offensive and weird and just entertaining.
2: And like Hong Kong films, there's you know those colored laser eyes and of course yeah, it, yeah, that's actually, that's an incredibly apt comparison. It's a Cat 3 film
1: made in Mexico. I literally thought it, I was watching it. I was like, oh, I, I just thought the title alone. And I had heard about the movie for years. I didn't know it was Mexico. So I'm watching 20 minutes. I'm like, this isn't Hong Kong. This isn't a Cat 3 movie. I was like, what is this? is this? Is this in Spanish? And I was just so baffled. I was like, I could have sworn if you would have told me the title and watching some of it, I would have said that it's a Cat 3 movie just without, without dialogue.
2: So the last two that I'll suggest uh, for a uh, first time on sale titles, I'll make these quick. Another film that we released during our halfway sale, Night Springs, which uh, was a very long time coming. Uh, again, the company that owns it, we worked on it for years, but there were some uncertainties over making sure everything was cleared, but that eventually got all, resolved. all films cleared for release. And yeah, that's... Uh, that's the type of film that I really enjoy because I, I have a soft spot, no matter how bad or strange or uncommercial they would be for regional slashes and uh, vanity projects. And nothing that not, screams is a vanity project that makes sense, but it was, you know, the the guy who produced and wrote it, this was his baby, much more so than the director. Like he wanted to make the film, he wanted to make, you know, like a uh, Very mainstream commercial Hollywood type slasher in his backyard. And he actually spent a decent amount of money on it and uh, tried really hard to make a highly saleable commercial slasher. And again, as is often the case with these sorts of films, the tone and the ambiance is just off in a way that makes it more special. Like, even though he's trying his best to make it feel like it was something that came out of the Hollywood concept, it still has that we're local, we're making it for ourselves mentality. Uh, And then there's the other element of it. In order to make it sellable, he had to beef up the runtime, so he added a bunch of clips from mostly graduation day, and then later on, some Swedish erotica loops, uh, which are very awkwardly shehorned in. That's something that he regretted for years afterwards. So, our uh, edition not only includes the actual cut with all of the unrelated pieces, in it, but uh, to uh, make him uh, feel like you know, the film is finally being seen in a book closer to what he intended we attempted to reconstruct i, I, I don't want to say like we you know we reconstructed the original cut because the film was never finished with that cut but uh we attempted based on what he explained what was added Uh, To reconstruct a version which would have been closer to what the film would have been like without all of these additional inserts. So, yeah, I I think that if you if you've seen the film, you know the film, like the film, like watching it with the graduation day loops, watch that fine. But I would really encourage anyone, especially if you haven't seen the film, to first watch it in in the approximation of the original cut because i think it's just a stronger film graduation this stuff is adding you know, like 10 minutes of footage and that's a lot of basically dead space that when gotten rid of makes for a much more satisfying and uh, quick-paced experience and there's also a, like a ton of killing scenes
1: yeah i remember there being a lot of oddball kill scenes the one doesn't somebody uh there's a when somebody's cooking that scene yeah. is pretty memorable yeah
2: yeah, there's a lot of like, and it's another film that it has this reputation of being bad, but I don't understand. You can watch um, graduation itself, even if you're like, "Oh, this is just boring filler." Okay, look beyond that. It's a fun movie. Like, there's no dead space in it. Even the even the the completely ridiculous subplot of the two escaped convicts who. Hold up and shoot up a diner or a gas station and then blow it up. Like, you know, there's so much ambition and value to be found in the film. Well,
1: I mean, I'd rather watch a failed, ambitious film than a movie that's ambition is to get in a red box.
2: Well, yeah, yeah. Or our uh, direct to 2 movie. Granted, direct to 2B movies aren't always terrible, but then,
1: yeah, uh, for sure.
2: Sort of, it's like, a sort of symptom of modern mediocrity. Anyway, the last one that I'm going to recommend, uh, a uh, ESA release from early this year, uh, Romano Mangustavolini's Dog Tags, which is his uh, extremely ambitious, like huge budgeting, uh, not platoon ripoff because they were shooting platoon at the same time, so he couldn't be ripping off platoon. It's his kind of after the fact apocalypse now caching made six years later, and yeah, very. Really ambitious and very well done. Huge budget. Helicopter explosions. Uh, beautifully photographed, well acted. Uh, not super gory, but there's a few spots that uh, make an impression like the leg amputation sequence.
1: It's pretty rough. Uh,
2: yeah. So that that's one that you know, if, if you enjoy Scavolini's films, you uh, extent to which you've seen scheduling films is Nightmare. And or, you know, White Dress for Ariel. I think that uh, Dog Tags is both a nice expansion on uh, what his filmography has kind of been reduced to, which is a, really just one really gory horror film. And yes, Nightmare has great gore sequences, but otherwise it's very interesting. The movie exists to be a series of gore sequences. The plot is meaningless. There's not really much to be said for creativity in terms of photography. It's...
1: Maniac ran into Halloween. Yeah. 50% Maniac, 50% Halloween. Not done as well as either, but still entertaining. That's a nightmare.
2: It's, it's fun, and there's no argument that The Door is excellent. All the kills are, are, are top-notch. Dog Tags is a genuinely like serious piece of work. It's the sort of thing that you expect to have premiered at some prestigious festival. Like it has that level of production integrity to it.
1: Um, You know, it's weird. I'm going to say this, and this is going to sound super bizarre. But if you were to take like Antonio Margariti's war films and mix them with something a little bit more serious and well made, like William Friedkin's Sorcerer. I would see Dog Tags kind of fitting somewhere in between those movies. Yeah, I mean, a, that's a great comparison. And, and uh, I love all those movies, so that's good. We also
2: managed to uh, figure out how to reconstruct both the complete English dub, or not English dub, because most mostly actors, but the complete English track as well as the Italian track. And the, you know, as a lot of these Italian movies the version that was released in English-speaking territories was different than the version that came out in Italian-speaking territories. Yeah, so therefore, if you want to see it in English, you're going to watch a different cut than if you watch in Italian, but it, it, they didn't shoot alternate scenes, they just cut it down. So we were able to fully reconstruct the totally uncut version, both languages. That's awesome. Yeah, cut.
1: So I mean this movie has been sought out. I mean, it's never had a release. No one ever really saw it, which is crazy for how much money you said it costs. And I I was I was impressed with it. I thought it looked really good. It was emotional, it was well done.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that again, like if you enjoy Italian movies of that era, it still has a lot of its Italianness comes through. Like it doesn't just feel like this faceless, generic war movie. I don't like it. I no enjoy. I do not enjoy in any capacity one Very few that I can really resonate with. Paths of Glory by Stanley Kubrick is one of the few war movies that I relate it to, and that's because of a more of a downer character drama. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like the whole you know stomping around the jungle, unless cannibals or zombies show up, I don't have a good trust. Me. And. Uh, Dog Tags is compelling. It's long, it's like about two hours long, but it, it's compelling. It's so well made. It's probably better made ninety percent of the town films in genre coming out. Of the title.
1: Yeah, especially the uh, the war films because the war films are fun and entertaining and big explosions. But they don't. Some of them do try to capture that like that feeling. Um, like Cannibal Apocalypse or Last Hunter do have something to say, but Last Hunter comes across as more of an. <laughs> you know, a deer hunter kind of style thing and not its own thing. But I mean, nonetheless, this is a good film. Different, but uh, still good. I'm
2: curious, what have been uh, the 2023 Vinegar Syndrome releases that you've enjoyed the most, especially if they were first watches?
1: Oh boy, I'd have to look at the list. I'm terrible lately. Um, I did. um, Here's one off the top of my head that is very funny to me because for 20 years, everyone's like, uh, uh, Killer at uh, ten, 10 Lake What is it? Killer at uh, 10 Lake a
2: ten killer.
1: Yeah, everyone was like It's the worst slasher I've ever seen Worst movie ever So I put it in, I watched it And I was like, I like this I, I imagine this is a different cut The original cut And that song was stuck in my head Mine, oh mine I actually enjoyed the movie And I listened to that song occasionally And I just was surprised with it Like, I'm tired of The slasher movies are the ones That people say are shit Are usually from the 80s Are usually still good
2: Yeah yeah, one that, though, I cannot get behind at all is Killer Party. I hate
1: that movie. I don't know. Does it make, I never liked it when I saw it. I have to rewatch it, but it, it's all over the place.
2: Yeah. And The Burning. I, I, I know you had it on your top 10. I do not like The Burning. I've, I've warmed on it just a little bit, but there's something that even in 80, shot in 80, came out in 81, that even by then felt so thoroughly generic, in like a thankless way. Like they're, yeah, you know, something like Madman, which is clearly just a Friday the Thirteenth ripoff, like in every respect. Like you know, so sure, they're just basically making it. It, it, it's essentially Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, before Friday the Thirteenth Part yeah. Two, Friday the Thirteenth At least they're having fun with it. At least it has like these weird elements. Uh, the Burning is thankless. Like, and I remember the first time I ever watched it, I liked the opening. Like, oh, this is like an interesting premise. I like it. It's like 42nd Street. And it had that sort of nightmare type vibe where it's like sleazy Times Square, hooker killer. And, and it just goes to this boring, generic summer camp. The lands.
1: I think what stands out for The Burning for me is I like the characters and they actually look like kids. Which is a rarity, which is what what Friday 13th Part 2 actually has going for it when you compare it to a lot of the other Friday 13ths. The characters are solid in in terms of the slasher, but so is My Bloody Valentine, so is Happy Birthday to Me. Um, They have solid characters. Um, I think when you get away from the early 80s, you start getting really crappy characters, but you get some maybe more ridiculous kills. But I've always been a huge fan of The Burning, and I have not rewatched it in a long time. It's still one I have to rewatch for 81. Uh, so maybe i won't feel as strong about it but by the time you get to that and that year you have what how many campfire stories did you have you have friday 13th too you have madman you have the burning everybody's standing around a campfire and then on top of that you have stuff like just before dawn like a lot of wood woods and stuff like that
2: yeah so all right what what are your uh worst so far night of horror okay
1: that's fair night of night of the zombies okay um, some of them, I went ahead and did something really dumb where I um, tried AI subtitles, but I didn't run it at that large base, like the huge base. So I'm getting really crummy subtitles on there. So um, it's hard to rate that kind of stuff. But there was a couple movies I wanted to see for a while, like Yarshi, the giant, the evil giant, a.k.a. like Para Ratnari. And that was Thai. And like, it's not great. But the problem is because the subtitles were terrible. But I don't know exactly. If that's just the uh, me into not liking it, but uh, if, as far as low ratings are concerned, we have Night of Horror, Frankenstein Island, Saturday the Fourteenth, Night of the Zombies. I don't care for any of those. I really don't like Saturday the Fourteenth. I just think it's crummy. It's not funny. It's just late. It is so soulless.
2: Yeah, yeah. Most of those are pretty bland. Like, and there was also this glut of horror parodies at the same time, like yeah. Back Beach. I really just. Which is all right. I mean, it's certainly better. If it's R-rated than the PG version, but yeah, uh, that one. Uh, student
1: student bodies. bodies. I love Student Bodies.
2: I don't. I think that there's there's some surprises in Student Bodies that make it maybe a little bit more interesting, but it was just so dumb.
1: <laughs> Saturday fourteenth to me is bottom of them though. No matter what, there, there's some ones that. I, I'm a little harsher on than I should be. Dawn of the Mummy, I don't love, which I should. It should be right up my alley. Um Straglada, Wolf, the Indonesian Friday 13th, I don't love. One that's actually the second half is really great, but the first half is so inept and crummy and the acting's bad is Fear No Evil.
2: Yeah, I I don't love Fear No Evil. I, me either. I, I rewatched it within the last year, I don't remember why. Uh and yeah, it, 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 there's something kind of amateurish about
1: it. Yeah, it's just, a, it's very inept. It's almost like the story never came together. Faces of Death 2 is pretty poor in comparison to the first one. So um,
2: Faces of Death 2 and 3 are Real footage. Version, well, depending on which version you watch, you're going to see different movies. Really? So Faces of Death 2 and 3 were both highly re-edited and less. The original versions of both I, I hate Faces of Death too. I think that Faces of Death two, like the first one, I like. First one, Me I too. think, a really good, interesting film. Also, in part because I think that the score actually works really well, and it does a nice job of blending the fake stuff and the real stuff. Faces of Death two has a few interesting moments. Like I like uh, what was it? Like someone like jumps off of a building. And that's, like, a big simulated scene. Where it's also, like, a homeless section that I think is interesting.
1: There's a robbery that is clearly made for it that's really poorly done. But the animal violence, like, the, the
2: real animal violence in 2, unlike in the first one where it's, like, slaughterhouse footage, the real animal violence in 2 just seems cruel in ways that immediately turn off.
1: And it's also way too late to be doing like the mondo kani style thing where they just get a bunch of footage and narrate over whatever they want and faces of death too seems like they just got b-roll of deuce footage that they couldn't put on there and just narrated over it it's just a patched together crummy piece of shit cash cash in to me that's what it felt like well mondo kani has excellent you know cinematography at least and a great score and it was groundbreaking for the time well this one is just way too late to be doing this stupid shit and it's ugly
2: now the original cut of Faces of Death Three, which is just called Fear, yeah, was uh, actually quite fun. Right, really? it's like uh, it, it has nothing to do with the world. Well, I mean, it has like some real death stuff, but it's much more about death as a concept. So there were there's like s- sequences with mediums and, and clairvoyance and
1: is that Journey into Fear as well?
2: You no, know, not Journey into Fear. So Faces of Death 2 and 3 were made simultaneously. And 2 was supposed to be a Faces of Death movie, whereas 3 was not supposed to be a Faces of Death movie. It was just going to be called Fear. And it came out in Europe as Fear. But then MPI, which had the video rights on all of them, uh, retooled Faces of Death 2 and made it about 20 minutes shorter than the original. Like The original version of Faces of Death 2 was as long as the first one. But the video version is like five minutes. And then they, so they took sections from two and then completely retooled uh, three because three did, or fear did not have Dr. Gross in it. So yeah. if you look at three, what the American release is, the Dr. Gross segments are all shot on the video. Wow. With the exception of a couple, which came from Faces of Death 2 because they took some of the stuff out of Faces of Death 2 to create fake faces of death three while taking out all the supernatural stuff from fear. Uh, yeah.
1: What a mess. So are yeah. you guys ever going to do a box set of all of them?
2: Uh, sadly, I do not think that's in the cards.
1: <laughs> uh, I appreciate, uh, you coming on and talking about the nesting 1981 and black Friday. Is there anything else you'd like to say?
2: Uh, no, don't think so. Actually, I, well, one final thing, I suppose, uh, I feel like the BSA releases this year are going to be uh, hopefully extra exciting for people who are interested in both uh, American indie horror as well as uh, Hong
1: Kong. That's awesome. Yeah, big in the Hong Kong stuff, I mean, you can catch patterns on when they get released and stuff like that. You know, it, it, through DVD, when all the Hong has got DVD, and then and now we're in that cycle for Blu-ray, which is exciting because a lot of stuff that's never been put out is getting put out.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm trying to unearth more of the Hong Kong horror stuff. Like, yes, the action has its audience and they do well, but it does not excite me to release a bunch of Chinese nice action movies.
1: No, no, those are great movies,
2: but yeah, some of them are are very good. Much rather be releasing weird '80s
1: or things. There's a lot in the early '90s. It, the, the list is on; it's it never stops. I mean, from Bloody Beast to all so many different movies. You know.
2: Yeah, yeah I've, I've just downloaded like a hundred of them to watch and give up my knowledge.
1: But the the funniest thing is after the Untold Story, or actually after Doctor Lamb. Everybody rushed to make all these, like, based on true story, really violent, rapey Hong Kong horror movies, and you got Bloody Beast, you got Daughter of Darkness, you got the Untold Story, Ebola Syndrome, and half of them star Anthony Wong, but they're all just big rape fest. The ones that interest me is that weird... The weird one where it was based on the, uh, the serial rapist in um, Hong Kong who would rape all the people in the apartment buildings. And there's a little red to kill in that too, you know, red to kill has some of that in there, but there's like two movies made the same year, the year after the the person was caught, the serial killer. It's just such a weird.
2: I watched it based on true story, like a true apparently true one uh, a few days ago. Oh, the intruder.
1: Yeah. I've heard of that. 98. That's late nineties, 97.
2: Yeah. It felt older, though.
1: Yeah, and of course. It also,
2: has some expectedly like really nasty violence and, and but it's 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 a different uh, it's a different tone. Uh, once, do you know what it's about?
1: Uh, no, I know it's a female killer, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yeah, she's holding this random guy hostage, and we don't know. Or, and then eventually when we find out uh there's like a, a really like effective macabre element to that that i think is worth going in blind at.
1: oh i mean like it could go two ways it could go straight up hard candy or it could go straight up flashback and do the whole big flashback those hong kong movies are always about the flashback reveal
2: there's a little bit. This doesn't have. This has flashbacks in it, but it doesn't have a flashback reveal. This one, uh, the the, uh, the the surprise comes very out of left field, but it's also good. Very...
1: Oh, sounds interesting. I mean, hopefully you guys can get those. I mean, like I said, don't sleep on the Hong Kong movies, especially from 1970 to 2000. They're all pretty crazy and interesting stuff.
2: All right. Well, I think uh, have we covered everything?
1: I think we're good. Thanks again.
2: So.